one of the things that a lot of college students deal with is the reality that it's difficult to be away from home. It's tough to be away from home. I'm going to bet that there are some folks uh, from, you know, Texas with us right now who are like, man, I'll give anything in the world for some Whataburger because that like tastes like home to you. That smells like home to you. Our Inland Empire folks, man, they'd probably give you their whole meal plan if you could just get them some In-N-Out Burger right now. Our, Our people who are on the soccer team from Arizona, I'm pretty sure like after one day of soccer practice in the humidity with the mosquitoes, they're like, deliver me back to the desert, sweet baby Jesus. Like, I just want the dry heat. I would take 8 million scorpions over all these mosquitoes that are, that are itching me up and down my body. Um, I, I've got a word of encouragement, a word of reality for you. The word of encouragement is, no matter who you are, it is difficult to be away from home. There is a time where you just hit this wall and you say, I want to I go back home. I want the things that are familiar to me. Um, The word of reality is that I don't know that we ever necessarily outgrow that. So for me, uh, I've been not at home. As of this year, I've been not at home for as many years as I was at home. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon. When I was 18, I went out and I went to college. I haven't lived back there full time since then. I visit a lot. And there were times where I went back even for the whole summer. But now this year at 36, like even though I still claim that as mine, it's tough sometimes to not get homesick. Like this has been a a homesick day, a homesick week for me even. And they're like, there's, so there's a nonsensical reason for that. And there's a reason that really makes sense. The nonsensical reason um, is that like, you know, today, huge soccer match in Portland, Oregon, Portland versus Seattle, vitriol and vitriol separated by three and a half hours on I-5. And and, and just like even watching it today on ESPN and hearing the songs and, and seeing my motherland. Like I was like, man, I want to be there, man. That'd be like so fun. Um, The other piece of that is, is my grandpa's dying right now. You know, and um, I got the name Christian because that was my mom's maiden name. It was uh, my grandpa's last name. He went to Sterling College. He was in the ministry. It means so much to him that I have the opportunity to steward this office. He's 95 years old. He had a big fall um, at the beginning of the week. He has been on hospice care. He hasn't eaten since Monday. And my mom and my grandma and my uncle are administering medication to him every two hours, even through the, the middle of the night. And even if he were to like die right now, I wouldn't even necessarily be able to get back home for the funeral because my wife's 38 weeks pregnant. And we like talked about it and stuff. And it's like, you know, you just don't miss the birth of, of, of your kid, even though my grandpa in his will for like the last decade has said, I want Christian like to do my service someday. And so like, you just feel like, man, what I really want, like, I just want to go home. And yeah, like I need to be here and fulfilling things will happen here and joyful things will happen here. But sometimes there's just nothing quite like being at home. When we look at the book of Isaiah in a college setting, one of their very appropriate, meaningful things to us is that we are looking at a people who are not at home. The people, the Jews that that Isaiah is talking to, they are not in the place that God designated them to be. They're in this place that is called exile, meaning that the Babylonian empire had come in and has displaced them from their home, from the Holy Land. And so there's a remnant of people who are still there in Israel, but, but to keep the people from rising up, to keep the people from protesting, to keep the people from be, feeling empowered, uh, the, 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 the Babylonian empire has, has put them all in the far reaches of Europe and of Asia. 
You have people who have been separated from their families. And so they're not with the people that they love. They're not in their presence. You have people who are sent to places that are very different from the Holy Land. And so while there are things that they may have been used to eating and climates that they have been used to, perhaps even uh, mountains or, 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 or seashores that they had been used to, places where they had memories, deeply meaningful places, they don't get to operate in that space anymore. They are not at home. And if you were a Jewish person, one of the really, really difficult things about not being at home, especially in this exilic period, is that you can not work. The understanding of God back then, especially in terms of how you worship God, was very much more localized than what we think of today. When we think of worshiping God, we think of like, man, we could worship God wherever because the Holy Spirit is amongst us. And so we might have times where we like go down to Sterling Lake and, and the sun is rising. It's a very powerful exclamation of who God is because God created this. God made all of this. When you get to to, to the oceans or you see the mountains or or even where we're at, when you see the expanse of the plains, how big the sky is, when it gets so dark here at night and you see all of those stars that God has hung, those can be moments of worship for us. Sometimes those moments make the scriptures and those words that confuse us make a little bit more sense. Because we're like, yeah, that this picture that is being painted for us throughout scripture of God as this powerful creator, of God having authority for all things, over all things, when I can see that very practically where I'm at, that gives me an opportunity wherever I am to simply worship God. But if you were a Jewish person, the place where you would worship God was in the temple and in the holy city of Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was in the temple. It was this box, and inside of the box there were some relics, there were some artifacts that reminded the Jewish people of what God had done for them throughout history. And so you had the tablets that had the Ten Commandments to remind them of the law. You had Moses' staff that reminded them of their deliverance. You had uh, some some manna in there that was meant to to remind the people of God's provision. And this was in, in the middle of the temple. And so depending on who you were and then how holy you were, were viewed as, you would have the opportunity to go to the outer parts of the temple or the middle part of the temple. Or if you were the chief priest, then there were special times throughout the year when you could go all the way in, into the presence of God, to the very throne room of God and be in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. It was a very dangerous place to be. It was so dangerous because what we see in the Old Testament is that we as people could not stand in the presence of God's full holiness. And so when the chief priest would go in there, they would actually tie a rope around the chief priest's waist. Because if he went in there and if his life was not right, if he did not follow all the things that God told him to follow, he would actually succumb. His life would be extinguished in the presence of God. And they would have to pull his big old backside out of there via the rope. No one else could go in there and retrieve him. There was a sense in which worship happened in a very localized space. And so if you weren't home, not only were there things that were unfamiliar to you, not only were you separated from people that that, that you loved, not only did you not get to see the things that you were used to seeing, smell the things that you were used to smelling, hear, hear the different animals that were indigenous to the regions that you would inhabit, but it was impossible for you to even feel like you could have a full connection to God. And so these people, these Israelites, 
as Isaiah speaks to them, we know that they are not home. It's within that context that we hear Isaiah opening up this book that he has for them. Isaiah chapter one, verse one starts like this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when he was, when, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's super depressing stuff. It might shock you to be informed right now that the thesis of the book of Isaiah is actually that God is going to deliver Israel and Judah. The thesis of the book of Isaiah is in fact a word of hope. The thesis of the book of Isaiah is that God will restore you. He will restore you now. He will continue the restorative, faithful work that he started at the very beginning of time and he will finish it. He will complete it. So for the people of the Old Testament, that looked like a very specific thing. They were going to get to go home. They were going to get to go home. And you know what? Even though they had been locally not home for a while, they had really in spirit not been, quote unquote, at home for even longer than that. Because the picture that we see painted there in the very first part of Isaiah is a picture of generational sin. And it's a a picture of people who had broken their covenant with God. God entered into an agreement with the people of Israel all the way back in the days of Abraham. And God said to Abraham this, I'm going to make a nation come from you. That nation will be robust. That nation will be huge. That nation will number more than the seas on the sand, the, the sand on the seashore. That nation will number more than the stars that are in the sky. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then something happened along the way with that covenant. The people that God had called to be in a covenant with him, they broke that covenant. And see, covenant is a little bit different than simply a contract. When you think of a contract, when you think of something that you may sign for employment, when that is broken, then what happens? When that's broken, it's broken forever. If you sign a contract with some people, if you're a laborer and you say, you know what, I'm going to come over, I'm going to build a fence around your house and you agree to how much money is going to to be paid. Do you you agree to, to the supplies that you are going to use? You agree to the parameters of the job. If you do not fulfill that, that contract gets torn up. It gets just make it rain. It flutters on down and it's all glittery and beautiful. But in some ways, it's very sad because you ain't getting paid. 
And in fact, if you've been front and fronted some money, the person who you have signed that contract with, they're going to come after you. They're going to litigate you. They're going to try to get something back from you. A covenant is different from that. So when we talk about the relationship between God and his people or between covenantal relationships between people and people, be they people groups, be they husbands and wives, we're talking about by nature, a little bit different of a relationship. Because with the covenant, there is this expectation that there will be some kind of restoration. When God makes the covenant with the people of Israel, there there are two ways to look at what happens when they are being punished. The first way that the people historically have looked at it is that while there is this covenant that God will never leave the people, God will never forsake the people, they will worship him, they will bring honor and glory to his name, and he will stand by them, that there is room in there that if the people are disobedient, and if they're not, quote unquote, staying at home, then God may need to teach them a lesson. God may need to allow something to happen to them so that they can regain their focus. There's this other view that if people decide to abide outside of the bounds of what God has called them to in that covenant relationship, then they have an opportunity later to come back in, that God leaves a door open, that God continues to call them to be a part of that covenant once more. Either way, what we have there is an opportunity for hopefulness, that people who were not home may in fact be able to come back home that people who had sinned could in fact be restored. That all of this desolation, that all of this sickness, that all of this stankness, that all of this rot that God paints a picture of here in Isaiah chapter one can become something that is not putrid and something that is not off-putting, but something that is glorious and beautiful. In some ways, I love the imagery that Isaiah uses here. In some ways, it kind of makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit. Like you hear what he's talking about, and he's talking about that you are sick from your head to your heart. And when Isaiah talks about this notion that you have bruises and you have sores and you have raw wounds and they haven't been taken care of, but in fact, they are festering. That's very vivid imagery in terms of just how sick Israel was at this time. When God talks to them about how there is desolation, how everything has been burned to the ground, that's a very vivid image. And what we see there is a God who at one point in time had been patient and a God who had given people every opportunity to turn back to him. But people who generationally had forgotten, it says there at the beginning of that passage that in fact they did not know, that they did not understand. In verse 2, that even as they had been children who had been reared up, they had rebelled against God. You see this picture of generational and of cyclical disobedience that gets worse and worse and worse. Had it have been addressed at the beginning, it would not have become the issue you that it is now, but it was not addressed. And so the very covenant itself had seemed to be cast aside by the people of Israel and looked to be worthless. But man, the good news is this. The good news is that God never casts the covenant aside. And we will see promises that God will make as we get later in this book where God will say, you know what? You are under the thumb of Babylon right now but Persia is coming to save you. Persia is coming to restore you. We'll get later in the book and we'll see that Isaiah starts to prophesy about this man that we know as Jesus. 
And God will talk about extending the covenant to all people. God will paint a picture of this Jesus who is a servant, a picture of this Jesus who suffers for the good of others, a picture of this Jesus who doesn't just take desolation and rot, but they can take death itself and make something live out of that. So the question for us as people who are quote unquote, not at home is how do we deal with a text like this that seems so down and and so gloomy and, and where God is so angry. And I think that there are two things that we can do. The first is to see, even in the midst of us not being at home physically or more importantly, what I want to talk about today spiritually, where do we see the grace of God still moving in our existence? In verse nine, the the word of Isaiah says this, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. We know from Genesis that Sodom and Gomorrah were laid waste that they were completely destroyed. And Isaiah looks at what is going on around him. He's saying things are really bad, but you know what? God did not completely take us out of the Holy Land. A remnant was left there. Some people were allowed to stay. And so the worship of God was allowed to continue by some people. Our traditions were allowed to continue. We were still allowed some claim to our land that God had given us. And so there's, there's this hope. There's always this, this kindling, this, this essence of life where we can say we may be able to go back someday and we can hope that we can all be joined together with that remnant. And so for us, when we're not feeling at home spiritually, for some of us who may not have grown up in environments where spiritually we were really cultivated, where we talk things about God, we might be saying, I've never been home. I was born into spiritual exile. I don't know who this Jesus is. This God that you're trying to tell me about is very foreign. We can have hope to know that even though we in our lives might not be home, that God still calls us home, that there is a call even in dark times for us to know that things can be different, that things can change, that God can and wants to make them that way. And the other place where I think we, 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 we can have some opportunity to say, okay, this word actually does apply to me, is for us to realize that the first step of getting back home is realizing that we are not where we are supposed to be. Because my guess is that there were some people during this time who sat down and they they looked around and they were like, you know what, Babylon is great, but maybe this is all I can hope for. Babylon's not not great and, and, and I'm separated from my people. Maybe it's time for me to forge a new or a different identity apart from this thing that God had for me. I'm sure there were some people that were probably looking around thinking about like, all right, what kind of side hustle could I have up in Babylon? Or I kind of creep on a come up and carve out a good life for myself. And I wouldn't even have to go back. And I think there were some people who, depending on their reputation or their family's reputation, wouldn't even want to go back home, even if it meant they couldn't worship God. They were ready to hightail and and run and, and never return to that former life. The first step for all of them was to realize this place that I'm at right now is not where I'm supposed to be. It's not where God wants me. And so if that's the case, how did I get to this place? How did my people get to this place? And what's the first step that I need to take to get back? That first step is always repentance. 
And so for us, even though we're going to talk about a lot of good news this semester, even though we're going to talk about a lot of promises that God makes, even though we're going to talk about how great it is to be in the presence of God and what it looks like for Jesus to offer that to us in some new and some radical and some powerful ways, the first step is to kind of survey the situation and for us to realize that there are areas of our life or even our entire life where we are not quote unquote home. We're not where God wants us. We're not where God needs us to be. And that the first step for us, once we recognize that, is to make an about face, to turn it around, and to take another step in the right direction. That's what repentance is about. Because times may be dark for us right now in our lives or in our hearts, but God is calling us to the light. God is calling us home. Story after story about this in scripture, story and story about after story about this in the church, story after story about this, even within our community. People whose lives God has changed for the better because they took that first step of saying, you know what? I'm not home right now and I've got to get back home.